Welcome to Taxpayer Talk. I'm Isla Aitchison, Research Officer at the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, and today I'm joined by Michael Riddell, former Reserve Bank and Treasury economist. He also has a blog at croakingcassandra.com. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Isla. So how much trouble do you think New Zealand's in? Can we take any solace in the unemployment figures? Well, we clearly can't take any solace from the unemployment figures. I mean, even within those numbers, they had data that showed that by the end of the quarter, the unemployment rate was up to 6%. And, you know, all that's while the wage subsidy was on. The wage subsidy is due to come off this month. Um, we've still got the borders effectively closed, um, even before these latest lockdowns. And so we can expect quite a big increase in the unemployment rate just from what's going on domestically. But as importantly, I mean, the wider world economy is in a real mess, Um you know, the virus has not gone away, well, really anywhere much. Uh, monetary authorities haven't been able to do much. It's usual when you get a significant recession to have a big cut in interest rates. That hasn't happened this time, and we can come back to sort of why or why not. And although there's been a lot of fiscal support thrown at things here and globally, the willingness of taxpayers to commit to a lot more fiscal spending, I think, will exhaust itself quite quickly. The Reserve Bank the other day published their monetary policy statement. Uh, they had a table in there of our government's plans. The fiscal stimulus there peaked this quarter. It starts tailing off from now. So in a sense, you know, we've protected people for a few months, but those protections are going to fade. And again, setting aside the latest lockdowns, we're nowhere near being able to reopen the border um, and see the overseas tourism, which is a really major export industry, uh, back again. I realise it's hard to make a guess, but once those protections do fade away, as you say, would you be able to take a stab at the kind of figures we'd be looking at? I think there's sort of a common view that somewhere in the 8 to 10% range is probably um, where we're heading. It depends, of course, what the government does. And those sound plausible to me. By contrast, in the recession in 08-09, uh, the New Zealand unemployment rate peaked at about 7%. Um, in 1991, it peaked at about I think, 10.5%. So, you know, you're talking about a, a big loss of jobs, really high rate of unemployment. And even on the official numbers, the banks forecast the other day, they show the unemployment rate coming down really quite slowly. And, and that sounds plausible too, given what we know of the global environment and what is and isn't being done in terms of policy stimulus. So the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, in their policy statement, signalled an increase to their large-scale asset purchase program to $100 billion. What do you think are the risks involved, specifically the risks in the stability of the banking and financial sectors? I don't think the LSAT really makes much difference to the banking or financial sector. In fact, I've argued that it doesn't make very much difference to anything at all. What it's doing is you've got a central bank that's going out buying government bonds. Those government bonds are earning just under 1%. And in exchange, it's giving the people selling them deposits at the Reserve Bank. Well, the Reserve Bank's just another government agency. So what you've got is short-dated government bonds that are earning 0.25%. You've exchanged one lot of bonds for paying, say, 0.75%, given out ones earning 0.25%, you wouldn't expect much macroeconomic effect from that. And we're not seeing much macroeconomic effect. Probably the, the biggest risk that it's giving rise to is that the government's selling a lot of long-dated government bonds. The Reserve Bank's buying them back, and it's issuing these deposits that earn the OCR, and the OCR is repriced every few weeks. So if something were to happen in two or three years' time that meant the OCR needed to go up a long way, then suddenly the government is on the hook for those much higher interest rates on those Reserve Bank liabilities. I think that's a small risk, but 
that's the direction that it's taking. It's, it's shortening the duration of the government debt when with interest rates so low, if anything, we should be looking to lengthen the duration of the government debt. Do you think that is a risk that we are getting into a reserve bank that's simply unable to increase the interest rate because the government is in so much debt? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I think you know, the Prime Minister is quite right to say that on the government's official numbers, at the peak on their projections, we have government debt of about 50% of GDP. That would put us in the lower quartile of OECD countries as of last year, let alone where we'll be when all those other countries have increased their government bond, government debt levels. I mean, I don't think 50% of GDP government debt is a desirable place to stop. In fairness, neither does the government nor the opposition, but it's not particularly troubling either. I mean, it's the sort of level of debt that we had in the early 90s. There was no constraint then on the ability of the Reserve Bank to raise or lower interest rates, and I wouldn't expect that to be an issue um, this time either. To play devil's advocate, though, a lot of people are saying that those high debt levels mean that should New Zealand run into a further problem, you know, another natural disaster, we would be out of luck and in a bit of trouble. You don't think that's a plausible risk? No, I do. Um, I just wouldn't want to overstate it. Um, I mean, I think you've got to remember that a bunch of other countries went into this crisis with government debt levels far higher than ours are now, and there's no sign of the market threatening to cut them off or penalise them. So the US or the UK, but it's not just those very big countries, there are sort of intermediate ones as well that um, have quite a lot higher debt than we do, uh, probably around the sorts of levels that we will get to. As I say, we shouldn't be complacent about public debt at 50% of GDP. It's unnecessary in the long run. It's undesirable in the long run. But it's not something to panic about either. And we do need to be a little bit cautious that reducing the government deficit to bring the debt ratios down in a hurry doesn't itself cramp the eventual recovery. Now, this is one of the reasons I've been arguing that what we need from the Reserve Bank is aggressively negative interest rates. If we had aggressively negative interest rates, we'd be giving a big stimulus to the economy from monetary policy, and that would give us more leeway to close the fiscal deficits um, earlier. But there's not much sign that um, our central bank or indeed other central banks um, are yet willing to, to make that step. I'm not the only one calling for this. There are sort of respected international economists who are running this argument internationally. Uh, Ken Rogoff, the former chief economist of the IMF, uh, had a piece out a couple of months ago arguing that you know the US and a bunch of similar countries all need deeply negative interest rates. In New Zealand, a typical recession, we see the OCR cut by 500 basis points or thereabouts. This time, we've seen it cut by 75 basis points. It's not surprising that in response, business confidence remains weak, the exchange rate remains relatively high, and the prospects for any quick recovery and return to full employment just aren't that good. Even recognising that the virus itself is you know, a troubling backdrop that would make it hard. Can you identify any issues with going into negative interest rates? Well, we can't at the moment go deeply negative because what you can do is, I mean, I'm a trustee of a superannuation fund. We could take our $10 million of bank deposits and convert them into banknotes. Um, banknotes earn nothing. And if you can do that costlessly, then there's no point in taking interest rates deeply negative. So you've got to break that link and establish a, an exchange rate, if you like, between deposits and cash. The usual argument that's run against going into negative interest rates is that it would compress the profit margins of banks and maybe make banks more reluctant to lend. And so the argument is that you might have a, um, even though you get the benefit of a, a lower 
interest rate, you may not get much more um, credit flowing. My reading of the evidence in Europe is that that's not a particularly compelling argument. Um, there was a paper out just a few months ago that showed that, for example, corporations in Europe um, that had deposit balances responded, as you'd expect, to, to the negative interest rates uh, by shifting out of deposits into real investments, putting um, new investment in place. And people will often say, well, look, you know, uh, negative rates didn't do much good in Europe. And I think that's wrong. I mean, I think if you go to where Europe was going into COVID, they'd more or less got back to full employment. Um, it was a slow path as it was in other countries, including New Zealand. But there's not a lot of evidence that um, the transmission mechanism wasn't working. And I mean, I'm not the Reserve Bank governor's big fans, but I think he and I are on the same wavelength here in believing that the monetary policy transmission mechanism, the way it affects the economy, uh, has continued to work so far. And there's no particular reason to believe that going to negative wholesale rates would materially change that. It's worth bearing in mind that you know, most of our retail rates are still materially positive. Um, so a typical mortgage rate might be 25 to 3.5%. So you're talking about a big cut in the OCR yet before you face the possibility of the person in the street dealing with a, a negative borrowing rate. Which presumably isn't a desirable outcome. Well, it's not desirable in the abstract. I mean, I think in the abstract, what you want is a a fast-growing economy with rapid productivity growth, and all else equal, that would justify what we call a, a neutral or natural interest rate that was materially positive. But on the other hand, when you're in a deep recession, the reason we set up central banks and set up monetary policy was so that you could cut interest rates really aggressively and get back on that path to full employment. Once you get back there, then you pull interest rates back up again. So the best example probably is the early 90s recession in New Zealand. Um, you know, unemployment then rose to 10 or 11%. We were able to allow interest rates to fall. It must have been the best part of six or 700 basis points. The exchange rate fell as a result of those interest rates falling, and that helped draw people back into the workforce. And as they did, we were able to let interest rates rise again and the exchange rate uh, come back to more normal levels. One of the things that's often overlooked in this discussion about negative rates is that the biggest benefit in New Zealand would probably not be from the impact on domestic savers or borrowers. It would be through the exchange rate. So one of the anomalous things about New Zealand at the moment is that our real exchange rate is about the same level that it was at the end of last year. And this is though, even though we've lost completely one of our biggest export sectors, the tourism sector. Again, in a typical New Zealand recession, you see the exchange rate fall uh, perhaps 10 20%. And so a negative rate would then say to foreign, potential foreign investors, hey, holding your money in New Zealand is just not that attractive. We'll go somewhere else. We'd get a lower exchange rate. That would shift demand towards New Zealand. It would increase the profitability of our exporters. It would support employment opportunities uh, in those sectors and get us back to full employment faster than otherwise. So you think that is a preferable response to that issue as opposed to the Reserve Bank increasing its portfolio of foreign assets or trying to adjust it that way? Yeah, I mean, in isolation, again, I agree with the governor. He made this point in his press conference the other day that you wouldn't expect that sort of exchange rate intervention, because that's what it is, um, to work particularly well. And the reason to think about that is that 
you know, exchange rate intervention tends to work in a couple of circumstances. One is when the exchange rate is manifestly overvalued. Everyone in that is looking at it and going, can't understand why it's so high. Everyone's quite nervous it's going to fall. And sometimes the Reserve Bank can, can give it a jolt um, and get it lower. That's not the case at the moment. We're about the same level we were last year. The second uh, way it can work is if your interest rates are extraordinarily low by other countries' standards, because then you intervene and people go, we really don't want to be in this currency. Um, you know, let's sell. We'll take it as a signal. The problem here is that if the Reserve Bank intervened and bought foreign assets, again, it would be paying for those by crediting the accounts of the banks with the Reserve Bank. And it's paying what is, for now, a relatively high guaranteed interest rate, 0.25% on unlimited balances there. So anyone looking around the world uh, at this intervention goes, oh, that's nice, they've made it a bit cheaper for me to get into the New Zealand dollar, and I can still earn this small positive um, interest rate. So foreign exchange intervention might be effective if it was coupled with the Reserve Bank having taken the um, OCR uh, negative as well. It probably wouldn't be necessary, but it might you know, usefully reinforce the um, easing that you're looking for. We're seeing asset prices go up. Would you say this is a function of investments being diverted to higher risk and higher yield investments in the financial market? I think it's a bit of a mix. I mean, I think the housing market remains a bit of a wild card. I noticed the Reserve Bank was predicting the other day they still think that house prices will fall by 10% over the next year or so. But the waters are muddied at the moment because as a result of New Zealanders coming home from abroad, there are actually more people in New Zealand post-COVID than we would normally expect um, at this time of the year. And those people have to be accommodated um, somewhere I'm a little bit sceptical that lower interest rates will raise house prices very much and for very long. And the best evidence, I think, for that is that if you look across the OECD or the advanced countries in the last 15 years or so, since before the last recession, interest rates have fallen around the world by four, five hundred, six hundred basis points. Real house prices are no higher on average than they were in 2007. Now, that's not the case in New Zealand and Australia, but then you have to look at what's unusual about us. Well, what's unusual about us is all these land use restrictions, the, the things to do with the RMA and the Local Government Act. Um, and if we'd freed those up, we almost certainly wouldn't have seen house prices uh, rising that strongly. In the US, by contrast, in those places where there's liberal land use laws, interest rates have fallen very dramatically over a decade. House price to income ratios are still around three. But you know, more generally, what we want at the moment, one of the ways in which lower interest rates work is by encouraging risk-taking behaviour. Um, so people say to me, well, what happens if you go with a negative interest rate? Won't people just pull their money out of a bank deposit? To which my response is, yes, and that's a good thing. You know, what are they going to do with the money? Well, they can either take it overseas. Well, that'll lower the exchange rate. That's what we want. It's how monetary policy works. Um, they can, if they're a company, buy an investment good put some more plant and machinery in place. Well, that's good. It's additional demand. They can buy a house. Now, you know, we might think of that as a, a bad thing in some ways, but actually the housing turnover in the environment of a recession adds to activity, uh, adds to perceptions of wealth and supports demand. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. Yes, there's a little bit of a boost to asset prices, but in the middle of a recession, that's not necessarily um, an entirely bad thing. I want to go back to house prices specifically. 
House prices going down by 10% in the next year, did you say? Yes. That's quite dramatic. Is it dramatic enough that we should be worried about it? No, it's not particularly dramatic. It's similar to what we saw in 2008-2009. And, and of course, that didn't last particularly long. It took about five years, I think, to get back to the previous peak, 2007 to 2012. And, you know, most people who are borrowing... um, partly because of the LVR restrictions, have had to um, have a deposit of at least 20%. So, you know, the Reserve Bank has done uh, pretty good stress tests where they look at banks' lending portfolios and um, they certainly don't find that you get any sort of financial system problems um, if house prices fall by that much. For some individuals, of course, it could be a bit difficult, but the usual problem is if the house price has gone down and you've lost your job... And that, again, just tells you how important it is that we orient macro policy towards getting back to full employment as quickly as possible, especially while inflation is so far below the middle of the target range and is expected to remain there. Just to be clear then, you're not concerned about inflation in New Zealand despite all this central bank activity? Well, at the moment, I'm concerned that the risks are to the downside. I mean, this has been a massive deflationary shock. Um, we, the Reserve Bank and others do surveys of inflation expectations and they ask people what they expect over one, two, five, ten years ahead. They've all come down really quite significantly since the start of this year. One the Reserve Bank tends to focus on as a two-year measure of inflation expectations. It's about 60 basis points lower than it was at the start of the year. So, I mean, there is some risk. It's always something you've got to keep an eye on. But actually, in New Zealand, inflation has been below target for the last 10 years. In the US, where they did QE 10 years ago, there were a lot of people warning about the upside risks to inflation. It just never arrived. You can't assume it never will, but at the moment the risks seem more to the downside, and that's what market prices are telling us as well. And what are those risks if we have quite a lot of deflation? Well, one of them is that interest rates become less less effective. So, you know, if we had take an extreme example where we had inflation at 10% um, and the OCR in real terms the same as it is now, so adjusted for inflation. At the moment, inflation is about 1, the OCR is about minus 0.2, is about 0.25. So you could have 10% inflation and say a 9% OCR. In that environment, you can cut the OCR very dramatically and get the stimulus that you're looking for. As inflation expectations drift down, if the Reserve Bank's not changing interest rates, actual real interest rates corrected for inflation are rising. And so this is one of the points I've been making is that the OCR this year has been cut by 75 basis points. Inflation expectations have fallen by around half a percent. So in effect, in real inflation-adjusted terms, we've only had about a 25-point easing in interest rates for savers and borrowers. And you just don't get much behavioural change if you're only changing by 25 basis points. What I'm not saying is that deflation is somehow in itself bad. It's not necessarily bad. It's just that when it arises in our day and age, it often goes hand in hand with economic circumstances having been tough. It's an indicator that central banks haven't done enough. You know, the government has set the inflation target um, centred on 2%. Um, There's been a consensus among most economists that's a sort of good number to aim for. The economy tends to work more efficiently with a, a moderate degree of inflation in the system. And we're just not getting that at the moment. The other thing that's important about it is it's not important only in itself, but it's an indicator that there's room for the central bank to do more. So that if inflation expectations were rising, if they were above the 2% target range, 
then you know it would be quite reasonable to say the Reserve Bank really needs to be pretty cautious that the inflation risks are mounting. But really, it's a it's an indicator that points it should be pointing the Monetary Policy Committee to saying there's room to do more. We can see the unemployment around us. We can see that the market's not worried about inflation at the moment. Let's give it another kick. And if those expectations change, there's plenty of time to um, restrain ourselves to adjust to, to raise interest rates again. Most people are in agreement that the burden of stimulus is shifting from the monetary side to the fiscal side. Where do you think the areas of fiscal policy are that should be targeted? And what do you estimate the returns on spending should be in order to lower debt levels? I mean, I think fiscal policy definitely had a role in the last few months. One of the things that fiscal policy can do that monetary policy cannot do is it can provide immediate income support. So, you know, when the government locks down the entire economy for a month, it's entirely reasonable that we provide support in one form or another, whether it's the wage subsidy or the sort of pandemic insurance that we talked about the last time I did one of these podcasts. You get money out the door. What we should be really quite concerned about is the direction in which fiscal policy is now going, where government is saying, you know, come one and all, bring your um, attractive project, uh, lobbyists and the people who talk most nicely to us, have the most ideologically suitable projects, will get the money. I mean, that's a recipe for really poor quality spending, um, you know, whether it's the Rickerton Race Course or the Apodiki High Street or, you know, there's a human rights charity in the paper this morning saying, hey, give us money, we've got jobs we can create here as well. Well, sure, you know, every charity, every firm in the country would like a subsidy, but it's just a dreadful way to go. And it's a recipe for undisciplined spending. Now, you know, if we could get real GDP growth back up to, you know, three or four percent per annum, uh, then what we'd find is that we wouldn't need budget surpluses to um, bring the debt ratio down quite quickly. We just need to be, you know, relatively near balance and the denominator um, deals with the problem. The chances of us getting to those sorts of sustained growth on New Zealand economic policies is exceedingly small. You know, productivity has been a major weakness of New Zealand um, for the last well, 60, 70 years, but certainly for the last decade as well. And, and nothing in the sort of set of policies governments have had in mind over the last few years or their COVID policies really looks set to change that. Well, what do you think would? Um, well, I mean, it's off onto another topic. I mean, I've argued that um, one of the problems for New Zealand is a really rapid growth in our population in a really remote location. And so I've argued that in New Zealand, and you know, New Zealand circumstances aren't everyone's, we should be looking at a permanently lower level of immigration. And what that would do also is lower the real exchange rate, make exporting from New Zealand more profitable, take pressure off the domestic economy and allow it to focus more externally. But, you know, there are other things that, that would support that. Um, you know, lower, our company tax rates are quite high by international standards now. The RMA that everyone talks about fixing up is clearly, to some extent, an obstacle. I, I don't think it's a game changer in terms of our product activity growth. But yeah, the thing that's most anomalous about New Zealand is the rapid rate of productivity growth in a really remote location at a time in world history when connections and networks and um, all those sorts of things have become more and more important. New Zealand's been a really successful exporter over the years of raw materials um, and commodity products. Those don't depend on those personal networks. We found it really hard to um, develop other types of export industries. And we don't help ourselves do so by bringing in a lot of people who, you know, 
I've got nothing against them as individuals. They're pursuing the best interests of their family and good luck to them. But not many of them are exceptionally skilled. Not many of them really offer transformative opportunities um, for New Zealand. And immigration policy is one of those things that, you know, mainly should be organised to try and benefit New Zealand and New Zealanders. In terms of the current situation New Zealand is in, I realise I led you sort of off track (laughs) there. The New Zealand Taxpayers Union recently published a briefing paper advocating for a temporary cut to GST. How do you feel about that proposal? Um, I was one of the people calling for this um, about six months ago. Um, And so it might surprise you to learn that I'm a bit more sceptical now. Uh, One of the reasons for that is that when I argued for it six months ago, um, we hadn't had the sort of massive fiscal commitments that have have since been made, whether it's the short-term wage subsidy things or the um, shovel-ready projects and all the other things that the government is spending money on. So I'm sort of uneasy about... um, um, throwing in another seven or eight billion dollars um, of spending on top of that, and there's really two reasons for that. I mean, I would definitely argue that the, a temporary reduction in GST is superior to ministers deciding to subsidise the Rickett and Racecourse or the Apodiki High Street or or whatever, whatever. Unfortunately, what it would end up being is both and. My more important argument, though, is probably that I think a temporary reduction in GST is likely to be less effective and less reliable than cutting interest rates. So the Taxpayers Union document um, takes as given that we can't cut interest rates. If you believe that, then there's a logic to what um, you're saying. I don't believe it, and and neither does the governor for that matter. I mean, the bank's the difference between the bank and me is just I think they should be doing it now and they're open to doing it next year. Um, Monetary policy works better because it gets into all the cracks. I mean, that's a quote from a former central bank governor in in the United States. The temporary reduction in GST will boost consumption, but it won't do anything much for investment because it doesn't affect firms because firms don't pay GST. It doesn't affect the exchange rate, and yet we're an open economy that's taken this hit to the tradable sector. And the other problem with it is that I think you outlined it as being in place for a year. That's fine if we're confident that in a year's time the economy is going to be strong so that we can afford to raise it again. But, you know, COVID isn't going away globally. Nobody knows what the situation is with the vaccine or the borders. And so the idea that you could commit now to raising it in a year's time looks like sort of technocratic overreach. We just don't know sufficiently well when we can raise it. And the beauty of monetary policy is not only can you implement it pretty quickly, and you can do that with the GST, but you can leave it totally conditional on the economic situation as to when you raise interest rates again. And, you know, that's the way the monetary policy framework works. It says when we think inflation is going to be back at 2% and rising beyond it, then we raise rates. We don't give a commitment to a date. So I think it's not a bad idea, um, but I think it's dominated by um, other options. And you do want to be careful, I think, given your understandable concerns about tax rates more generally, with giving away that much money on top of what we've already committed. Right. So you think it could lead to worse taxes being increased to pay for it. Because we actually quite like GST when we're honest, don't well, we? Well, precisely. So, you know, it's, a, it's a, an efficient tax. And, and, and so cutting it across the board is an efficient instrument in that respect. It's a lot better than picking and choosing which uh, incentives to offer and those sorts of things. It's just that 
you know, if we can't guarantee that in a year's time it'll be time to raise it again, most probably it gets extended for another six months or another year. Would that be such a disaster? Well, it's another four billion or another eight billion. Right. And, and by contrast, monetary policy works without costing the taxpayer anything. You know, you're shifting relative prices within the economy. The, the, I mean, what an interest rate does is it tries to reconcile people's savings preferences and their investment desires. In an environment like this, people are trying to save, they're very uncertain, they're cautious about the future, and nobody wants to invest. So that the equilibrium, the natural market interest rate, probably would be negative, but our central bank is stopping it going there. And so what you're proposing is saying, let's take lots of taxpayers' money and all these future obligations and use that instead of using the, the tool that naturally is designed for reconciling these. And yet so many people are saying we've just reached the point of monetary policy where it's not doing the job anymore. You just think they're wrong. Yeah, and so does the governor for that matter. I mean, I think, <laughs> again, you know, he and I don't agree on much, but I mean, he, I heard him in his press conference the other day say, look, monetary policy works, it has been working up to now, and I believe it would work from here. Uh, I think there's every reason to believe that's so. Not that we would have a robust economy in six months' time. I mean, we've got COVID there. We're trying to push against that. It's it's a really difficult time. But we would provide support in a whole variety of directions, most particularly the exchange rate. But I mean, the other one is that think about the government running a scheme where they're lending at zero interest to small businesses at the moment. On the one hand, the government is saying, we'll lend to some of the riskiest businesses in the country at zero, but safe, sound businesses that have been borrowing from our banks for decades are stuck with their borrowing rates at three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, depending on your risk profile. In this environment, the interest rates that a, a firm like that should be paying would be a lot lower. You ease the servicing burden, um, you encourage people to spend, to, to save, and to shift into riskier assets. And you know, riskier assets sound like a bad thing, but in an environment of risk aversion, where everyone's looking to huddle down, it's a good thing. You want people, I mean, the, the governor himself says he wants banks to lend courageously. I'm not so sure about that, but I do want the people who are best placed to allocate risk and to take on risk, which is the private sector business community, to be saying, hey, where are the opportunities? And if I can borrow for zero instead of for five, some opportunities that looked um, unattractive a few months ago might look attractive now. And people are willing to go ahead with projects that they might otherwise just park and say, we'll come back to them in a few years' time. And you don't think a consequence of that will be we end up with people investing things that frankly were too risky for them to invest in and they probably should have had more of an obstacle to doing it? Well, on the first, yes. Um, I mean, that's always a possibility. So whenever the economy recovers, some people will make bad investment calls. Um, I mean, I'm surprised to hear the taxpayers' union advocating this sort of consumer protection role, right? In the end, what we're talking about is private choices and, and, and who's better place to make them. I mean, at the moment, what the government's doing is taking these risks on all our behalves. You know, what's the cost-benefit analysis of the Rickett and Race course or the Apodiki High Street? Or, we have problems with that, I promise. Yeah, good. So all the island-based cycleway, I mean, most of them are they're terrible risk. Now, no one's going to go bust as a result of that but our whole economy ends up being poorer as a result. So there's sort of a messiness to the private sector that doesn't appeal to technocrats. Technocrats like tidiness, public officials like tidiness, but it's not the way that market economies um, work, and market economies have been the basis of our prosperity in the longer term. How much of an impact will continued low interest rates have on future social spending by the government? For example... What's the present value of social spending in 25 years? Should we be spending more? Hmm. I'm not sure. Um, 
mean, I think the biggest challenge is simply, um, you know, do we get the economy back to full employment and fix the productivity uh, performance? If we do, then I think we can afford the sort of welfare system that we've been running. Um, ultimately, that's a political preference as to you know, where you are along that spectrum. You know, NZS, there's no reason why we can't keep running NZS as it is, I don't think that's a desirable outcome. I think it would be better to raise the age of eligibility, both for those individuals and because the money that's being used for that spending can better be used um, for some other um, things. But I mean, I'm not sure the present value of the social spending is a particularly meaningful number. I mean, it depends really whether the, the interest rate is going to reflect the fact that productivity growth is permanently lower. If it is, then the capacity of the economy to bear that spending won't increase. But if that happens, then we'll probably change the parameters of our social system down the track. I think we're better at the moment to assume that we've got a very nasty shock and that as we move through the shock over a three, four or five year period, we'll return to a path of at least moderate productivity growth. Most likely New Zealand will continue to lag behind the rest of the world, but not so catastrophically that in the space of 25 years, it will radically change the sort of affordable parameters of the welfare system. I hate to end what has actually been quite an optimistic interview on a fairly cynical note, but you've said a few times throughout this interview you don't agree with Adrian Orr on a lot of things, and yet most of the points that have come up here, you have been in agreement with him. What are you concerned about in terms of the behaviour of the Governor and the Reserve Bank? I think two things. Um, one is they've just been too slow to move. Um, so I think you know the, the mental model that we have of how the economy works seems to be quite similar from the way that he talks. But you know, a year ago, he gave a nice interview to Newsroom where he said, you know, if we get a downturn, then we should go to negative interest rates. That supports inflation expectations, gets the economy going. He was quite negative then on um, quantitative easing. He's never given us a good explanation for why he's changed his mind. Second, they, ha- they aren't very transparent. Um, if you use the Official Information Act and try and get the background research papers that they provide into the Monetary Policy Committee, they consistently refuse. And I think thirdly, the fact that they don't stay in their lane. Um, so the Reserve Bank has a very important but quite narrow job, managing price stability, stabilisation of the economy, and managing the financial system, climate change, Maori strategies, um, infrastructure spending. They're all important issues, but you know, we have cabinet ministers and other government agencies. It's not the role of the Reserve Bank. And when the Reserve Bank governor sounds off on those subjects, he undermines people's confidence in the fact that he's serving the public interest. You get the sense that instead he's serving some political party or other. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think Adrian is out there thinking, what can I do to advance Labour or the Greens this election? I think it's just that those are his own personal biases. But frankly, people shouldn't know the personal biases of governors. Um, What they should know is they're committed to financial stability, committed to price stability. And for the rest of it, we should know about as much of their political views as we know of the police commissioner's views or the chief justice's views. We want these powerful independent agencies to do their specific narrow job and then to fade into the background on everything else. And Adrian's just not been doing that. Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay.